0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. David prayed, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we get started this evening, we need to... Pray, make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary and get ready for some mental uh, gymnastics and exercises as we have to deal with what I think is, let's put it this way, when I mentioned this to Jim Myers before class, he said, what are you teaching tonight? And I told him, he said, oh, you're going into that whirlpool, huh? So it's just like a enormous maelstrom that sucks you down and never lets you come up. At least that's how I felt studying through this. So get ready. A few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word, that you use your word in our lives to to challenge us, to transform our thinking, and to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, it's your word that contains your complete thought to us, informing us of everything we need to know for life and for our spiritual life. Now, Father, as we continue this study in Daniel, especially the difficult Things that we're trying to put together this evening. We pray that you'd help us to understand them, give us some level of clarity, that we may see, continue to see your hand of control on human history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Daniel chapter eleven, verse forty. Daniel eleven, verse forty. In this last section of Daniel eleven, beginning with verse thirty-six, the shift has gone from historical events historical events which uh, took place and were fulfilled during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the Seleucid kings. The Seleucids were one of the uh, four groups into which the uh, Greek Empire of uh, of Alexander was divided. The, the, The Seleucid Empire represented the king of the north. Now, it's important to kind of keep these things straight as we get into the last part, of uh, Daniel. Now I've got a map here of the Persian Empire, and the reason I'm using this map is because it's the most all-inclusive map I could come up with on the overhead to give us all of these geographical locations. When Alexander died, the, uh, his empire was divided up among uh, Lysimachus, who had Thrace and Cassandra, who had Greece and, and the Seleucids who controlled roughly Syria and Persia, and much of Asia Minor, and then the Ptolemies down south in Egypt. In Daniel 11, consistently up to the end of Daniel uh, 34, the king of the north refers to the Seleucid dynasty. And the Seleucid dynasty controlled all of this area you see here on the map that's, uh, in, in what is now Turkey or Asia Minor, Syria, which is just north of Israel, over into uh, Parthia or Persia. And uh, here you have on the map, you see Assyrian media. But this area here between the Tigris and Euphrates River, thats that's modern Iraq. It is over in this area further east that you get into modern Iran and then way off to the, Far right of the map is Afghan, modern Afghanistan and Pakistan. This is the Indus River here, and in India to the to the southeast. Now we have to keep these geographical locations in mind when it ta- when the text talks about the king of the north and the king of the south. It's talking with reference to Jerusalem, so we have to keep keep that in mind. Well, we've studied the last few weeks. We came down to to verse thirty and we saw that the king mentioned there is not Antiochus, that the events from 36 on are events that do not fit any historical background. These are events that were not fulfilled in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes or in the Seleucid Empire. They refer to future events, specifically the reference of this king who will do according to his own will, sometimes called the willful king, is the Antichrist who is the ruler of the ten nation nations European, uh, Western Confederacy, uh, the King of the West. And verses 36 through 39 go into his, uh, religious, uh, the religious dimension of the kingdom that comes into being. Now remember, let's put some things together from what we've studied in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and that is that the Antichrist is just some, seems to be some second class a uh, secondary level ruler at the beginning of the tribulation he may not even be in a position of power at the time of the rapture but he comes to power in a, in a, in a country takes over conquers three other countries and then seven other countries join with him to make this 10 nation confederacy it has its geographical and cultural uh cultural root in The ancient Roman Empire. So he, it is referred to by students of prophecy as the revived Roman Empire, which fits with fits with the image of Daniel chapter two, the feet of iron and clay, iron coming from the Roman Empire, the the legs of iron, and then the uh, the feet of uh, iron and clay. So that puts that puts that together for us. We saw we concluded last time in verse thirty nine that he shall act against the strongest of fortresses with a foreign god. So he is able to attack militarily some of the strongest fortifications and military uh, military forces at that time with the aid of a foreign god, and that seems to be Satan. He is part of the satanic trinity of the end times uh, comprised of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. He is indwelt by Satan, and it is through the energy and power of Satan that he is able to defeat all of these armies. He acknowledges this God and this God alone, and, and he will advance his glory, and he is going to rule over many. And it says at the end, he will divide the land for gain. And the land here would refer to Israel when he has set up, as we saw in our study of Daniel chapter 9, when he enters into his peace treaty with Israel... He is certainly going to enter into Israel and utilize the resources of Israel for his own personal gain. Now we come to verse 40. Verses 40 to 45 describe a mil- various military campaigns related to this particular king. Now it seems fairly simple when you look at these verses. Uh, what is being described here, and remember this is part of a campaign. Sometimes we talk about the battle of Armageddon, but the word in the Greek used for battle is polemos, and that refers to a campaign, not simply a battle. It is a series of battles that take place at that particular time. And that seems to be at least what it comes at the end of this section, where we read in verse 45, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. That would be between the Mediterranean and uh, Mount Zion, or the Temple Mount. Yet he shall come to his end. That takes place at the, at the Battle of Armageddon. But what precedes this? That's the question. What are the events described in verses 40 to 45, and how do these relate to other Scriptural descriptions of military campaigns related to the tribulation. And I, as Shakespeare wrote, there's the rub. That is what is very difficult to figure out. Uh, one of the difficult, one of the things that, that has made this difficult is usually as a pastor you like to be able to stand up in the pulpit and say, well, this is what the Word of God teaches. Well, I don't know what the Word of God teaches on this subject. Okay? Shall we close in prayer? No. Uh, And I have been beating my head around on this particular issue for several months now. I started getting some questions on this back as early as, I think, March, as we were looking at all of the increasing uh, terrorist attacks on Israel, the bombings, and and as intense and as tense as things were in the Middle East back in March and April, people were trying to figure out, well, if this whole thing blows up into a major war between Israel and Iraq, how does that fit into uh, biblical prophecy. Now we all know the principle that there is, uh, that, that nothing prophetically has to take place before the rapture. So let's just put this up on the overhead and draw a timeline. We're in the church age right here. And the rapture is going to come at some time and none of us know when. That's why it's referred to as imminent. We don't know when. Nothing has to take place for the rapture to occur. Now, that's one statement. No prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture occurs. But that is a different statement from saying that some prophecy might be fulfilled before the rapture occurs. But the prophecy that if any prophecy is fulfilled before the rapture occurs, it's prophecy that's not related to the timing of the rapture. It's related to what's going to happen after the rapture, which is the seven-year period of the tribulation, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, or Daniel's 70th week. So there may be some things, and the battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 might be one of these events that takes place before the end of the church age and, and is necessary to set things up internationally, in the international community for the events that begin once the Antichrist. It might even be part of what brings the Antichrist into power so that he can sign a peace treaty with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. That is one of the scenarios that we're going to look at tonight. But to say that some prophecy is fulfilled in the church age is not to deny the principle of the imminency of the rapture. Because if this prophecy does take place, if... Ezekiel 38 and 39, the battle, the invasion of Gog and Magog, if that takes place at the end of the church age, before the rapture, then it has nothing to do with the rapture, and it has to do with what will happen to Israel subsequent to to the rapture. But I have problems with that view, as we'll we'll see when we start evaluating some of these different uh, interpretations as we go through the study. I want to begin by just reading through Daniel eleven forty to 45 so you have this in your mind. This, this lays out the scenario, and I'm just going to briefly comment on these events as we go through. I'm going to put a, this map back up on the screen so that you can have that as a reference point. It begins by saying, at the time of the end, which places it clearly in Daniel's 70th week. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The king of the south is usually identified with Egypt. Now, this is one of the questions that we have to answer, is who is the king of the south? It's been identified all through this chapter with the Ptolemaic dynasty or Egypt. The king of the south is going to attack him, the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with, notice, he's got a navy, an army, uh, and an armored calf. That's the chariots chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. So this describes a battle scene between the Antichrist, that's the he, the king of the south, and the king of the north. Verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land. The glorious land is Israel. And the Antichrist enters the glorious land in the midst of this combat. Now, the question is, when does this take place? I think this is taking place at about the middle point of the tribulation. It very well could be, and I'm going to use a lot of uh, subjunctives tonight because you just can't be dogmatic on some of these things. It very well could be that this initial uh, battle, it, it, it's first point in verse 40 and 41 is the result of the collapse of, of the peace, this global peace that the Antichrist has imposed on the world. It finally starts breaking down about halfway through. So the, the southern block, usually described as a pan, pan-Arabic block, but even that's uh, somewhat uh, questionable, led by Egypt, is going to attack Israel because Israel is the covenant partner of the Antichrist. So he comes in to defend his interests in order to aid Israel, and he's attacked by the king of the north, who may be... I mean, that's one of the questions. Who is the king of the north? Is the king of the north Syria? But the question there is, well, Syria doesn't have a navy. If they do, it's not much of one. It certainly doesn't seem to fit the scenario here. Of someone who has chariots, horsemen, and many ships, a large army. Or, as some suggest today, the king of the north isn't, uh, is a conglomeration of the Islamic nations that had made up the southern, uh, border of Russia, all the stands. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, this, this sort of a Islamic block. That would, Uh, represent this, this northern group. So you would have, and that could make sense, that you would have the, the king of the north, the king of the south, being Egypt in sort of a southern Arabic block, working, uh, together to, to attack and assault the king of the west, the king of, uh, the revived Roman Empire. He enters the glorious land, and the, the idea here is that this occurs halfway through the tribulation. This is when he sets up the abomination of desolation. But this could possibly occur earlier, and this could just be phase one of the, phase one of the tribulation. Now, if I put a chart here on the overhead of the tribulation being seven years, remember it's divided into two, three and a half year periods. Generally speaking, there is war, some war at the beginning of the tribulation in the beginning of the first three and a half year period as the Antichrist consolidates his power generally there is stability and peace throughout most of it because remember when he sets up the abomination of desolation we read about this last time in Revelation 9 the false prophet is going to cause all to take the mark and they're all going to buy and sell so the this is where things start getting complicated trying to work put some of these things together because it's at the time of the abomination of desolation that Jews are told to flee. But there still seems to be some stability at least financially because the false prophet is going to be imposing this new uh, tattoo or whatever it is on everybody for, to be able to buy and sell and engage in any kind of global commerce. I think that there's you start having a breakdown the first part of this period, and then it's in the latter part of the period, probably the last two years of this period, where you really have a tremendous uh, breakdown and a tremendous amount of of warfare taking place. And that's probably how uh, this fits into the scenario. Now in verse 41 we read, He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now that's the area on the southeast side of the Jordan River. That's the mountainous area, the wilderness area across from the Dead Sea. That's the area where the Jews are told to flee once they see the abomination of desolation. That's the area down there around Petra and Basra, which is where they're going to gather when at the end of the Battle of Armageddon they finally call out to the Lord and he comes to rescue them at that particular point in time. That's why Edom, Moab, and Ammon are are protected. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So he specifically, the Antichrist is going to come down through Israel from the north, down through the south, come down, and then he's going to defeat Egypt. Verse 43, he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heel. So here um, there's an indication, different views on how that is exactly, to that idiom is to be interpreted. Some suggest that that indicates that Libya and Ethiopia is in alliance with him. Others would suggest that they, they're they in opposition to him and um and they're still fighting him. Verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Now he's going to get tidings that something's happening up north. Now, what's happening up north if he's already taken out the king of the north? This indicates there's another northern power block other than the king of the north. And he's, there's going to be word from the king of the east. Now, hold your place here and let's turn quickly to Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. Revelation 16 is where we have the uh, one clear mention of the battle of Armageddon, which is really the campaign of Armageddon. Revelation 16, verse. Uh, let's back up a minute to verse 12. This is the sixth bowl judgment. The bowl judgments are the final judgments that take place at the end of the tribulation. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now look at the map. This is this river on the left here. You have the two rivers here in the central part of the Middle East. The river on the left is the Euphrates. This River is going to dry up, making it possible for the armies from the east to invade into Israel. That seems to fit the scenario that we have in Daniel 11 that the Antichrist, with his army down here in Egypt, is going to now hear word that there's an, an army coming in from the east and also one from the north. Now, it doesn't say much, it's just a hint. He hears tidings from the east and from the north. No trouble. And therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. So he heads back up into Israel. This is where he plants his tent between the waters and the temple. And this is where the final campaigns of Armageddon take place and the Antichrist is defeated. That's the scenario that Daniel paints. Now the question is, How does that relate to Ezekiel 38 and 39? So let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I'm not going to spend time exegeting through this whole thing bit by bit. But I want to read through it and give you this summary of what is going to take place in in Israel's future. Now, in the context of Ezekiel, chapters 36 and and 37 have talked about the renewal of Israel and the regathering of Israel. So that has to take place prior to chapter 38. Now that they are regathered, they are going to be attacked. Now Israel, in terms of what's happening in Ezekiel 36 and 37, uh, for all purposes, has regathered in the land. They have a national presence. They have a national state. They're in the land. So this could happen uh, technically at any point from this point on. Now we read in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now these terms, if you trace them out etymologically, and you go back to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 2, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Discover that the descendants of Magog, who was a son of Japheth, are, are later called Scythians, and the Slavic people have descended from, from Magog. Uh, also, the, so Gog is usually taken to be a reference to ex- people in the extreme north, as, as it's described in this passage. Rosh is seen as an etymological root to Russian. I think there's good, good uh, support for that. Also, Meshach, etymologically seems to be related to the route for Moscow, and Tubal also seems to be related to another city in the uh, area of uh, what is now modern Russia. So this seems to suggest something even further north than the king of the north mentioned earlier. Once again, just to give you an idea, one of the problems is that We have to decide, is the king of the north in Daniel the same as Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal in Ezekiel 38 and 39? One school of thought says, yes, they are equal. Another school of thought says, no, they are different. And I'll show you why some people say that. Uh, as we go through this this study, I tend to think that they are different. You cannot identify them as the same because different things happen. As we saw in in Daniel uh, eleven, the king of the north is defeated by the Antichrist. But Gog, Meshach, and Tubal, Gog and Magog, in in uh, and his allies in Ezekiel thirty eight is destroyed supernaturally by God directly, causing uh, earthquakes and the mountains to fall upon their weaponry, and direct divine intervention destroys them. So that seems to suggest two different uh, forces of destruction. God says to them, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army horses and horsemen. The idea of putting hooks into the jaws indicates that this is not something that they they want to do willingly. It's not like Russia sitting up there and saying, okay, now we're going to invade the Middle East. It's like we don't even want to do this, but because of alliances, because of other pressures, they are going to be pulled into the Middle East uh, warfare. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. Now, remember we saw in, in Daniel 11 that Ethiopia and Libya are said to be... Uh, antagonistic to the, the Antichrist there as well. At least that's how I understand that idiom. Here we have a union of God, Meshach, and Tubal is aligned with Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. So over here we have uh, modern Libya, and then Ethiopia is Sudan, and modern Ethiopia down to the south of Egypt. And then over here we have Persia, which is modern Iran. So we have this this alliance between uh, Gog, Dog, Rash Meshach, and Tubal, the uh, 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 Iran and Libya and the Ethiopian Sounds somewhat um, somewhat modern. And then we get into verse six: Gomer, Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all of its troops. Now Gomer is often identified with modern Eastern Europe. Because if you uh, go back and you look at, most ancient languages only had consonants. They didn't have vowels. So if you spell Gomer, it looks like this. Now, as words go from one language to another, for example, your guttural G often hardens to a hard C. So then you have a word like CMR and the Chimerians are also related to this eastern area and then um, words go from one language to another often you have transposition of letters and for example if you transpose those letters you come up with a GRM which is where we get uh, which are the basic consonants in Germany and uh, the descendants of Gomar related to, uh, one of his descendants is Ashkenaz in Daniel, I mean, in Genesis chapter 10, and you have a lake Ashkenaz up in eastern Germany. So that, I mean, these names that are, that you find over in Europe often go, uh, back into the, the mists of antiquity, and yet you find certain fascinating, uh, correlations with, uh, biblical terminology and biblical uh, biblical groups, tribal groups in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. So it seems to suggest that this is a massive alliance where you have Gog, Meshach, Tubal aligned with Iran, aligned with, uh, Libya and Ethiopia, aligned again with Eastern Europeans. And Beth, uh, you have, uh, Togarma and Beth Togarma, uh, which is the house of Togarma is often uh, allied with e- Eastern Europe, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and uh, allied with all of these other nations. So that seems to be the source of this invasion. Verse 7, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years, that phrase is the same phrase we find over in Daniel, which places it in, In my thinking, that places it inside the tribulation. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. So in the latter years, you're going to come into Israel. Verse 9, you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many people with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass. Notice the phrase, and if you want to, I'd suggest underlining it, that day. Every time we see this, let's highlight it. On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now that's a description of Israel. I want you to pay attention to that. They are described as a people who are peaceful, unwalled villages. That doesn't mean that uh, they don't have a military that doesn't mean that they're not protected according to uh studies that uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum has done on on this this uh, idiom he suggests that what this means is that they are in in a state of military security they're at relative peace doesn't mean no war at all but a relative peace but they are militarily secure in the land and the the uh Gog and Magog crowd attacks for the purpose, verse 12, of taking plunder and booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods to go on the midst of the land. Now they're being watched by Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshi. Sheba and Dedan is a reference to, to groups that operated down here in the Arabian Peninsula. So, it's like you have the Arabia the Saudis down here in alliance with the merchants of Tarshish. Well, Tarshish was was out on the fringe of Europe in in Spain, and the merchants of Tarshish would was a reference to those Europeans who were going out engaging in in commerce. So that the descendants of that crowd would be Western Europe and the United States. So the indication here suggests that you have, uh, Saudi Arabia and the merchants of Tarshis, i.e. the uh, people of commerce in the west, are sitting there and saying, well, why have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, and take away livestock and goods, and to take great plunder? So they're being critical of this attack because it's for the purpose of, of devastating the land and taking away plunder. God goes on to say in verse 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, On that day, second reference to that day, that that day refers to the time period when this attack occurs. On that day, when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north. So that's one reason I think that this is separate from the king of the north of Daniel 11. You and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. Now, I'm just going to make a brief comment. Riding on horses, are they actually literally going to be riding in horses? Well, there's two views here. One view is that the the prophets are writing phenomenologically. That means that in the ancient world they didn't know what a what an M60 tank looked like. They didn't have any idea what a Humvee was. And so they're writing in terms of their own vocabulary. And so when they're talking about chariots and horses and Ancient terminology—they're really describing mod, what would be modern warfare. Another view is that if this takes place toward the end of the tribulation, that because of all the judgments and war, that all the military stockpiles have already been used up, and we're back down to primitive warfare again. And I tend to go with that—that that view. That what happens is, uh, what has happened is that that. By this, that this is probably, see, so I take the view this is probably at the end of the tribulation and they've used up all their stockpiles of modern weapons, all the nuclear stuff shot off, all the missiles are shot off uh, as a result of all the tremendous judgments that take place during the tribulation. Nobody has any hydroelectric plants working anymore. Nobody's producing electricity. Computers are shot. Everybody's back to a, a pre-industrial age type of, of, of survival. But, you can't, I don't think anybody can be terribly dogmatic on some of this. Verse 16, You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. So God has a purpose for bringing them down. They think they're coming down for plunder. God's bringing them down because in defeating them, God's going to demonstrate who He is. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass, verse 18, At the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, my fury will show in my face, for in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. This is a massive earthquake that, that is really felt all over the earth. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. Every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against God throughout all my mountains. So as it, if they're coming from the far north down through the Taurus Mountains, down through Syria, the, this earthquake is going to wipe out the army as it's headed south. And then God's going to do something to bring confusion into the army as a result of this, not unlike what happened in Gideon's day when God brought confusion to the Midianites and they just start fighting each other and and the whole army self-destructs. And that's the description of verse 21. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed, and I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many people who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Now that seems to fit with certain types of pictures that we find in Revelation, uh, when it comes to the, uh, trumpet and the bold judgments. For example, in the trumpet judgments, you have earthquakes, you have a third of the earth being, uh, being destroyed, you have uh, hail coming down from heaven, uh, all of these things take place. Um, the waters are struck. The seas are struck. You have the, the heaven struck. The stars are darkened. All of these t- things take place early on in, in, in the tribulation. So it certainly has a, a, a tribulation feel to it. That's one reason why I am suspicious of putting this early in the church age or even after the rapture. Let's get into chapter 39. And you said a man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, lead you on, bringing you up from the far north, and bringing you against the mountain of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand, Cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. You and all your troops and the peoples who are with you, so they are destroyed in the land of Israel. I will give you to the birds of prey. And he goes on and explains more of this. And then the purpose is described in starting in verse uh, six. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. That's those who are living uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean. In Israel, Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Why does this battle take place? So that the world knows who God is. Now I have a difficulty placing that terminology into the church age or even before the tribulation. That seems to be terminology related to the end of the tribulation. When man finally knows who the Lord is. Verse 7, so I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore, then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done. This is the day. There's the third time that term is used. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn weapons. After the battle is over with, those who live in Israel are going to go out and they're going to gather up all the debris from the battle, from all the... All the uh, fuel, all of the weaponry, everything, and burn the weapons, both the shields, the bucklers, the bows, the arrows, the javelins, and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. That's a lot of equipment. But there's this seven-year cleanup of the battle, seven years' worth of fuel that is being used. Verse 10, Then they will not take wood from the field or cut down any from the forest, because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them. So you have this seven-year period where they're burning fuel. It's hard to put, reconcile that with, with certain scenarios of how this fits because in the second half of the tribulation, Israel's fighting for their survival. They're not going to be cleaning up the battlefield. They're told to flee to the hills when they, once they see the abomination of desolation. You don't see them going out and cleaning up the weaponry. You just see more and more devastation taking place during that last part of the the tribulation. Verse 11, it will come to pass in that day, this is the fourth use of the phrase, that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, that's east of the River Jordan, east of the Dead Sea, and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitudes. Therefore, they will call it the Valley of Haman God. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them. Do you see Israel gathering up the dead and burying them for seven months while they're in the second half of the tribulation fighting for their survival? They don't have time to do that. So, so, there's a, that's one of the problems in putting this together is anything that in puts this battle too early in the tribulation, you end up having the Jews trying to do this cleanup during their their worst war ever, and their greatest time, uh, and their greatest greatest time of, of needing to survive. And then notice it says the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Is make a note here Israel is cleansing the land. Verse thirteen. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified. The day that the Lord is glorified is the second coming fourteen. They will set apart man regularly they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of the search party to pass through the land, bury the bodies that remain on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land and when anyone sees a man's bone, he will set a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of hamon God. That's a detailed search. You don't do that in time of warfare. They're going through and they're meticulously going over every square inch of the land to clean up um, all of these, uh, the remains from the battle. Verse 17, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come and gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal. So, God's going to bring all these birds to the land to clean up, uh, clean up the dead. And there, these, these carrion vultures are going to come in and eat the dead, so at least there's not going to be a lot of stench and a lot of disease from all the dead bodies. Throughout the land. That seems to also, to me, be a picture of the consequences of Armageddon. But there are problems with that. Let's get down to verse 21. I will set my glory among the nations. My glory is a technical term for the Shekinah of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. That's our fifth use of that day. I take it that all of that days refer to the same event, and you can't separate these events in, in time. And then the rest of the chapter from verse 23 on, uh, the Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. It, it talks about the testimony to the Gentiles and the verbiage, from verse 23 on, clearly speaks of the end of the tribulation and concludes in verse 29, I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. That's new covenant terminology and that takes place at the end of the tribulation. Now that just gives you a brief summary of what takes place in these two chapters so that we can then address the question of how how these fit together. There are seven views on how these events are are placed and, and fit together with the events in the tribulation. The first view, well let's just review we have the church age, we have the tribulation, and we have the millennium. Notice I have put a gap in here between each one of these uh, for for the reason that most people realize there's some sort of gap between the rapture and the signing of the peace treaty that begins the tribulation. No one knows how long that gap is. There's also a gap as we'll see next time when we are the next couple of times when we get into Daniel 12, there's a gap between the second coming of Christ and the beginning of the millennium. Where do the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place and how does that relate to Daniel 11. That's the tough question. The first suggestion is that it is from the allegorical interpreters, and that is that this is purely symbolic. Well, we're just going to reject that out of hand because it's not based on a literal historical interpretation of the scriptures. But many people think that, oh, this is just sort of allegorical and it's merely a description of some future assault by the Babylonians on Israel. And or are, are, are the Romans, or whatever, but that's not grounded in the text, or It's not doesn't interpret the text literally, so we'll just reject that out of hand. The second view handles things a little more seriously. Now, this view, I think, is one of two views that has significant merit to it. I, I think that the battle, t- Gog and Magog, in Ezekiel 38, 38- Probably right after the rapture, or it takes place at the end of the tribulation. My vote at this point goes to the end of the tribulation, but I want to I want to go through this material and help you understand something about what the issues are. Who takes this view that it is before the tribulation and maybe even at the end of the church age? Um Arnold Fruchtenbaum takes this view. Tim LaHaye takes this view. This is the view that's in the Left Behind books. Uh, Tommy Ice, Dr. Ice, takes this view. And they basically were all influenced by a uh, guy who was a pastor of Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a guy by the name of D.L. Cooper. The view here stresses the fact that, that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Israel is living in unwalled villages. They're living in a time of military security. When you get past the midpoint of the tribulation, once the Antichrist has invaded, his army is on the land, he's got his statue in the temple, warfare is taking place, it's not a time of military security. Now that's a major problem for my view, because this text says clearly they're living in a time of of military security, the second point they bring up is that it's going to take seven years to clean up clean up the military debris. Now, if you put the if you put the um, the battle at the midpoint of the tribulation, like many people do, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Israel's not going to be able. You don't see Israel cleaning things up during the last three and a half years when they're fighting for their survival. So, so that seems to be a problem. Now, because of that. Uh, Arnold argues that the seven years has to be completed before the midpoint of the tribulation. That means that the battle of Gog and Magog has to take place at least three and a half years before the tribulation. And that can put it into the tr- church age. It, and, and if it doesn't put it in the church age, it means there's at least three and a half years between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Now, I have a problem with that just sort of abstractly because in all the transition times that we find in the Scriptures between dispensations, for example, the crucifixion is the end of the law. That's the end of the age of Israel. But the day of Pentecost doesn't begin the church age for 40 days, so you have a 40-day gap. You're going to have another gap in Daniel chapter 12 of about 40 or 50 days. You don't have any transition times between dispensations in the. In the scriptures of three and a half, four, five year periods of time, I've heard some people even suggest eight or ten years between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. I just have trouble seeing that much of a time gap. But once again, that's that's more my sense of the of the text and it doesn't have anything to do with any particular passage. A third argument that that uh, Arnold and uh, Tommy, in fact, I think Charlie Clough takes this position as well. A third position they argue is that Jesus cleanses the land when he returns at the end of the tribulation. Well, I've talked to Tommy about this several times. In fact, I called him up this morning and said, Give me one passage in Scripture that says Jesus cleanses the land. I've got three statements here in Ezekiel chapter 39 that say that Israel is going to cleanse the land when they bring up the dead bodies. Where do you get a statement that Jesus cleanses the land? when he returns to the second coming. Well, that's really a theological inference from comparing a number of passages, and, and that's, that's true. And I can see that theological inference and some legitimacy to that, so it's not like it's just some guess. But when Jesus returns, the, 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 you're going to have a change in the topography of Israel. This enormous mountain in the middle of Israel is going to come up because of this earthquake that takes place at the end of the tribulation. And that's where they're going to build the one square mile Temple compound for the Millennial Temple. Now, I don't if, if that's going to occur, and they're going to build the Millennial Temple right after uh, the right after the Second Coming in the beginning of the Millennium. I don't see them taking seven seven months in that period, picking up all the dead bones that that might be found there to cleanse that land for the temple. So, so it's clearly a complex situation. So that's their view. Now, the, the, the weaknesses with that view is, first of all, uh, I don't think that the text of Daniel 39 allows for a break between verse 20 and verse 21. That's Arnold's argument. Arnold says that t- starting in verse 21 of chapter 39 down to the end of the chapter, that's clearly second coming events. But verse 22 says, So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Well, I don't see Israel knowing who God is and being saved until right at the end of Armageddon. And the term that day used in verse 22 ties into that day of verse 11 and verse 8 and back into chapter 38, the whole Gog-Magog invasion. So that's a problem. Second, Israel is clearly stated to be the one who cleanses the land through the seven-month-long burial process, not the Lord Jesus Christ at his return. Third, no passage is found specifically stating that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who cleanses the land. That's a theological inference that is not necessarily uh, supported by the text. And then fourth, you have various statements in this section such as in verse 38, our chapter 38 verse 23, "Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord." Uh, also in 39.7, 39.13, and 39.21, all seem to suggest that at the time of the destruction of Gog and Magog, the world knows who God is. And I don't see that taking place three and a half years before the tribulation begins or between the rapture and the tribulation. I see that as something that happens at the end of the tribulation. The third view is the view that it takes place early in the tribulation, but once again, if it takes place early in the tribulation, you have a problem with the seven-year cleanup. Arnold's right. That seven-year cleanup has to either be finished by the halfway point of the tribulation or it doesn't even start till the end of the tribulation. That's why I think the only two views that really have any substance to them are the view that it takes place between the rapture and and the beginning of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation because I just don't see Israel being able to do any cleanup during the second half of the tribulation when they're fighting for their very survival. And the fourth view is the view of Dr. Walbert, who is the dean of dispensationalist and eschatology and former president of Dallas Seminary and probably has done more writing on prophecy than anybody else in the 20th century. And he holds the view, as do a number of other uh, well-known uh, pro- prophecy scholars and dispensationalists that it takes place at the beginning of the last three-and-a-half-year period or uh, just after the midpoint of the Tribulation. Uh, the basis for that is that they argue that the dwelling securely in the land and unwalled villages is a result of the covenant with the Antichrist and that doesn't fall apart till the halfway point of the Tribulation. They also want to... Con- also, some in this camp connect uh, the Gog and Magog to the King of the North in Daniel 11, and the King of the North invasion in Daniel 11 takes place at the beginning of this period, uh, so they make that connection. The problems are still what I've said before to, uh, you, you, you don't have the time for the seven year cleanup. The dwelling security, in, in, dwelling in unwalled villages doesn't necessitate that it's under the covenant of the Antichrist. Um, the king of the north is I don't think ought to be identified with Gog, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal. And uh for all of these reasons I think there's you've got more problems with this third fourth position and the third position. The fifth position is that it takes place at the end of the tribulation, that this is part of the battle of Armageddon, part of the campaign of Armageddon and I would argue that what happens in Daniel chapter 11 is that the king of the north and the king of the south operate against, or in tandem, against the Antichrist. They are defeated, and then when he's down in Egypt, he hears rumors from the far north, and that is Gog, Meshach, and Tubal coming down uh, in their invasion in concert with the uh, kings of the east. They all hit Israel. The kings of the north are going to be destroyed. Uh, I mean, Gog, Meshach, and Tubal, not the kings of the north, but Gog is destroyed supernaturally by God. Uh, the kings of the east are also destroyed in that way. And the focal point of Daniel, I mean, the focal point of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is simply on that one aspect of the overall Armageddon campaign. This is a position that's held by uh, Dwight Pentecost, who taught at Dallas Seminary for many years and wrote a classic on prophecy called Things to Come. It's the position of Pastor Theme, the position of Hal Lindsey, and a no- number of other scholars. It's interesting. I'm looking at my Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible here, and I was note- just to let you know that there's a lot of confusion on this in the, in the footnotes. The notes at the bottom of the page that just footnote the different verses. Whoever wrote the notes for Ezekiel, put the battle of uh, Gog and Magog early in the tribulation. But then this Bible has a number of different one-page articles in it that are quite helpful and quite instructive on a lot of different issues. And there's one written by a Dallas grad. He's writing his dissertation in Dallas right now on the dating of Revelation. Good prophecy scholar, pastor in Oklahoma City by the name of Mark Hitchcock. And Mark wrote the, the, the article on Gog and Magog. And he argues that it is. Uh, he identifies it with the king of the north, and that it is Russia, and it takes place at the end of the tribulation. So even within the Tim LaHaye prophecy study Bible, there is clearly a discrepancy of opinions by the various editors. So there's no clarity on this, and it'll just. It is. It's just a maelstrom, a whirlpool to, that uh, you, you get into trying to make all these things fit together and it just turns your head inside out. A sixth view tries to place it between the second coming and the beginning of the millennium, but there's no support for that, and there's not enough time, as we'll see. We'll interact with that a little more next time in Daniel 12. And then the last view, the seventh view, places it at the end of the millennium and tries to identify it with the Gog and Magog revolution that Satan leads at the end of the millennium. But that really doesn't fit any of the other factors that are given in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which clearly the fact that at the end of 39 it says, then I will pour out my spirit on Israel. That is clear terminology used in Joel 2, used in Jeremiah 31, uh, used in Ezekiel 36, all relating to the uh, beginning of the new covenant. So uh, my conclusion in this is that that uh, my inclination is to place Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 at the end of the tribulation, that Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are not the king of the north. They are another northern power distinct from the king of the north. But I think there's also some some uh, strong support for the view that it could take place uh, prior to the tribulation, uh, either at the end of the church age, but I doubt that, but during some uh, interim period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. So that just sort of gives you an idea of the kind of things you have to struggle with. I wrote about, I had several questions about this back in March and April where I began doing work on this, and I've read. In fact, today, just to go back over it again, I pulled three different textbooks on eschatology out, and they all differed, and they all give different arguments. It's Nobody has any any real certainty here, and I, I think that if you hear anybody teach on this with any great degree of of, of dogmatism unless they come out with some great new insight uh, take it with a grain of salt I don't think anybody has uh, real clarity on how Ezekiel 38 and 39 really tie in to to the tribulation just yet well that wraps up our study there of Daniel 11 and next time we'll begin the last chapter in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Uh, we recognize that you have written these things to inform us and that the only reason we lack clarity is because of our own uh, lack of knowledge, our own uh, lack of understanding of some idioms and some historical situations, and that often prophecy, uh, these prophetic passages only become clear as they are about to be fulfilled. And once these things take place, it will uh, certainly be be clear as to how they will take place. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that the key point here is that you are under control. You will bring about the fulfillment of all of your promises to Israel. And that no matter what man does, uh, we are you, you still control history. And your plan will come to fulfillment as you have said. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.